we're in Romans chapter 15, and uh, as I was studying this week, I realized we're probably not going to get through. I said last week we would, but we'll see how it goes anyway, but don't think we will. Um, Romans chapter 15, I want to start looking at the heart of the Apostle Paul, the heart of the Apostle Paul, because he closes out this incredible book with some very telling signs of his own heart as a true apostle of God. And um, as we uh, uh, look at this text that we have before us, Romans chapter 15, verses basically 7 through 33, um, is where we're going to be looking. It's important for us, I think, to understand that God has... uh, in store for us, even in the closing chapters of this book, some incredible truths that we're going to mine out together. And so you can follow along in your Bibles. I just want to read the closing verses here of this chapter, uh, beginning with verse 7 of Romans chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as um, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. To him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to uh, Illyricum, (laughs) I have, I always have a problem with that word. I, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has come, has, uh, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have no longer, uh, no long, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you 
in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present forever, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been, uh, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It almost sounds like it's the end of the book, but we got one more chapter after that. The one thing I was pondering as I read through this section of Scripture this past week is really we see the heart of the Apostle Paul. We see it in a myriad of ways, but I counted six, basically, and we'll go through those in the coming weeks. But the church early on needed someone like the Apostle Paul, a leader. Um, And you say, well, you know, what do you mean by a leader? The mark of a leader. I was reminded of a story by Paul Harvey, who's not with us anymore, but he used to have a program called The Rest of the Story, and most of you are familiar with that. And uh, he told the story of a physician who uh, his character bore very uh, much similar things to that of the Apostle Paul. And uh, like most physicians, Paul Harvey said, of great experience. His name was Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane. And he had become preoccupied with a particular facet of medicine. He had very strong feelings and concern over the use of general anesthesia in major surgery. He just felt it wasn't healthy for the patient. It wasn't a good deal. Um, and he did many studies, years of this, and he believed that most major operations could and should be performed under local anesthetic. He said, in his opinion, the hazards of general anesthesia far outweighed the risks of the surgery itself, which is a lot of times true if you've talked to people who've gone under surgery. He gives examples, patients with heart trouble uh, or... uh, uh, anesthesia allergies ran the risk of severe complications when placed, placed under general anesthesia for surgery. Kane's medical mission was to prove to his colleagues, once and for all, the viability of local anesthesia. Uh, he said that it would take a great deal of convincing. And to prove the viability of major surgery using only a local anesthetic, Kane would have to find a patient brave enough to go through what he hoped all patients would one day experience, major surgery without the dangers of general anesthesia. In his 37 years as a surgeon, this doctor, Dr. Kane, had performed nearly 4,000 um, 
appendectomies, taken out the appendicitis uh, from from their infected uh, patients, the appendix. This freed him from worrying about the complications of the surgery and focusing on the local anesthesia aspect. Having a volunteer, he proceeded. Somebody actually volunteered for this. The patient was prepped in all the normal ways, but in the opera room, operating room was given only local anesthesia. Kind of the stuff you get when you go to the dentist, right? And they're going to take out the appendix. Kind of crazy, right? As he had thousand times before, Cain entered the abdomen, slicing tissue, clamping blood vessels as he went, locating the appendix. The surgeon clipped it away from its surrounding tissue, folded the stump back in place, sewed up the patient's wound, all with the patient being wide awake and experiencing only minor discomfort. After a restful recovery of two years, or two days, excuse me, (laughs) after a restful recovery of two days, faster than most general anesthesia cases, the patient was released from the hospital to recuperate at home. Cain had achieved his goal to demonstrate that successful general surgery could be accomplished without the risk of general anesthesia. After Dr. Cain's experiment in 1921, mind you, his breakthrough technique has changed the face of surgery, but not only for scientific reasons. For Dr. Cain's name was added to a short list of pioneers in the medical field who so utterly convinced of their validity of their own theories, chose to use them first on themselves. Cain's first volunteer appendectomy patient was none other than himself. To prove his theory regarding anesthesia, local anesthesia, Dr. Evan Cain had removed his own appendix. I mean, it's been long said that great leaders ask their followers to go nowhere where they haven't gone before. And what we see before us in Rome with Paul is he's doing just that. He's leading. And whether it's losing one's life when he's surrounded by his enemies, uh, whether it's being bold or being humble... Paul is truly a leader to this church. And uh, Paul would never set out to boast about himself in any way. He always boasted in Christ. He always lifted up Christ. But what's interesting here is when you look at the church in these early days, we're just reminded that it was a, a world after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was a very divided place. Very divided. Some of the divisions were nationalistic. You had Greeks hating the Romans who had overpowered them, dominated by the uh, uh, Mediterranean. And Rome, they looked down on nearly everyone that they had conquered as inferior beings. Um, some divisions were racial as between the Romans and the Greeks, the Jews and the Arabs. Many of those divisions reached back over centuries of hatred. And some of those we even see persist today, right? Divisions. We see all the tension in the, mid, the uh, Middle East over there. Um, there were rivals between cities, places like Rome and Carthage and Sparta and Athens. Um, some of the divisions were religious, 
and probably the most starkest um, division was between the religion of the Jews, who was who they were basically monotheistic. They were they served one God, and the religions of the Gentiles, who were polytheistic. They believed in many pagan gods, and the Jews looked down on the Gentiles as heathen. And the Greeks counted were you know they were they were kind of looked at as uh, anybody who didn't know their language of Greek, they just said, well, they were just a barbarian and they don't know our language. It's kind of like people that know English today and you go to other parts of the world and you try to speak English and you're thinking, ah, they don't know English. I mean, that's kind of the attitude we have, right? Um, But all this was divided. This, This new church was dealing with all these complications. But the one place that was not divided remarkably were the Christians, were the true believers in Christ. Um, Because Christians in the church, they were composed of Jews and Gentiles, slave and freemen, Greeks and Romans, blacks and whites, um, rich, poor, so forth. You can go down the list of of different people that made up the early church. Uh, James Montgomery uh, Boyce points out that in Antioch, which backed Paul on his missionary's journey in Acts chapter 13. It, it kind of gives a little bit of an idea of their uh, background, who the leaders were at the church of Antioch. And it, it had such people as Barnabas, who was a Jew from Cyprus, uh, Simeon, who was a black man, uh, Lucas, who was a, uh, probably a Roman from Cyrene, another guy who was an aristocrat, who had been born with Herod, the Tetrarch, Saul, the Jewish teacher from Tarsus. And it, it, they all came together as leadership within the church. And it was a very effective church, by the way. And you say, well, how come everybody else was so divided, and yet the early church was able to come together and, and give birth to what we enjoy today? Well, we know they all knew who? They all knew Christ. They all knew Jesus. They knew the very Son of God. They knew that he had accepted them without condition. (laughs) He had accepted sinners as they were. And therefore, they had to accept everybody else as they were. And so this is the, the first aspect of Paul's heart that we see here. We see his unifying heart in verses 7 to 13. He was concerned about the unity of the church. And he hasn't really talked about it up to this point very much. I mean, I know that we've been talking about that we're one in Christ and unity among diversity. But I was surprised when I did a a word search to realize that, you know what, in all of Paul's writings, he only uses the word unity four times. It's amazing. Once... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, in verse 3 it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then in verse 13 of that same, same, same chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there's two kinds of unity here. 
The second one we read in verse 13 of Ephesians 4 is a unity of understanding or um, you might say of doctrine. It's referring to something that's yet to be attained because we don't have a perfect understanding of the Bible. We never will until once we're in the Lord's presence. But that first one used in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, it's different. Because he says, eager to maintain the unity of the what? Of the spirit. And it's spoken of something that's already been given to us. See, we don't have to make unity within us, amongst us as brothers and sisters in Christ. We already have that. Um, And that's just such an important thing to understand. We just have to maintain it. And that unity isn't based on our limited or mistaken understandings of God's truth. We could have different doctrinal understandings to a certain degree and still have the spirit of Christ. You know, that's why, why we don't claim to be the only church that teaches the truth. We would never say that. There are other well-equipped pastors and teachers in our area that, that do their best to bring forth the, the truth, the word of God to their people every week. And that's okay. And some of them, we may disagree on some doctrines, but that's okay. That doesn't mean they're not a Christian. We don't believe in what some do concerning the church as far as secondary separation. Um, If you're in the body of Christ, then you're in the body of Christ just as much as we are in the body of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, that's the unity that Christ spoke about in John 17. And so in the Greek text here in Romans chapter 15, verse 5, when he prays, he's praying that they might Mind the same thing. They might be of the same mind. Be like-minded, as we talked about before. Uh, The other text from Paul's writings where he talks about unity is over in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony or unity. And so Paul is concerned with the unity of the church, even though he doesn't bring it up too much. And so it's important to understand that his heart here is dealing with the idea that, you know what, he wants us to be unified in Christ. And one of the first things we see here in verse 8 of Romans chapter 15, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the Jews. That's who the circumcised are. Notice he doesn't say Jesus became a servant to the Jews. He says Christ, his messianic title, 
You know, the Jews expected the Messiah to be, what, a king who would rule over on the throne of David and drive out the Romans and, and take over. A king is someone who's served by everyone. And Christ came as their king. And they were, in their mind, in their thinking, hey, we're, we, we live to meet the needs of our king. Our king is not our servant. That would be wrong thinking in their thinking. But Jesus was not that kind of Messiah, was he? He was not that kind of king. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he told his disciples, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. I mean, that was shocking news to them. It's like, wait a minute. You're our king. Nobody's, you know, you don't serve anybody. Or in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, 35, he said of his kingdom, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That was just noise in their ears. They couldn't understand that. So Jesus came to become a servant. Christ came to become a servant to the Jews. And secondly, we see here in this one sentence, it says why he did this in order to what? To conform, confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, what is he talking about here? Jesus served the Jews. Christ served the Jews, but he did it in God's way. He did it in a way that God wanted him to do it, not in a way that they expected it. Remember, even the disciples wanted Jesus to be this hero. He was going to lead the march. He was the leader. They were ready to make him king on several occasions, as a matter of fact. But when he did not meet their, you could say, materialistic expectations, giving them free food, and what happened? They quickly turned against him. See, what God wanted was for him to be their what? Savior. And that is what the promises to the patriarchs meant. That's what that means. Because these men were told of a redeemer, a savior that would come and redeem them from their sins. And they were saved by looking to him, the Bible says, and trusting in him for what he would do one day. Paul explains this over in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 14. He says this, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ became a servant to the Jews. He came in order to kind of confirm those promises that were given to the men of old. And then thirdly, so that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. The end of verse 9 there, it says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. See, the fulfillment of all these promises that were made to the Old Testament Jewish patriarchs was not intended just to bless the Jewish people alone. That wasn't the reason they were given. But it was also for the salvation of the Gentiles, along with the Jews, so that both would glorify God for his mercy. And see, that's where the argument that we've been looking at in chapters 9 through 11 
of Romans. He puts it all right here in one verse. Back in Romans chapter 11, as a matter of fact, in verse 30, he says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, he's speaking of the the Jews, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. So, it's the first important example of Jesus' acceptance of other people. Um, He died for the Gentiles as well as for the Jewish people. He died for all. And so Paul's telling the, the Jews here, who would have tended to look down on the Gentile members of the church there in Rome, that since God has, what, accepted the Gentiles, the Jews had no right to not accept them. And that's why we don't have any right today not to accept a brother or sister in Christ. Well, you stop and you ask, this is the example of Christ. This is what Paul's trying to show us. Well, how did Christ accept sinners? If Christ is to be our example, let's look at a little bit Spend a little bit here this morning of how Christ accepted sinners. Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that he accepted them gladly. He accepted them gladly. In Luke chapter 15, you see a a parable there. See, to accept one another just as Christ accepted us is a mark of godliness. And you know what? A failure to do that, a failure to accept one another in the body of Christ as Christ did is a mark of fleshliness, of carnality. Failure to accept one another in love and compassion is really, it's an affront to the Savior who died for all of us. And he accepted all of us. And so a congregation that's constantly dealing with divisiveness and quarrelsomeness and judgments and all this other stuff is really ridiculing Christ's church. And they're rejecting the one who is their only hope of salvation. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, you read here in verses um, uh, 3 through 7, and Jesus is telling his critics here and the rest of the crowd, he's telling them this parable. He says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, obviously, the Bible clearly states that there's no one righteous. That's why this is a parable. It's a story. He's just drawing comparisons here. So graciously, Jesus calls all men to himself. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? 
I will give you rest. In John chapter 7, he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The idea is he's the only source of these blessings. And Jesus himself showed the opposite of joy. He showed sorrow when he looked over Jerusalem with great sorrow. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were what? Unwilling. From the very cross, he expressed his willingness to forgive when he cried out, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. Jesus truly accepts sinners joyously, gladly. But he also accepts sinners in spite of their sin. Isn't that a great thing? That's a, it's a wonderful truth. He accepts sinners for salvation in spite of their sin. See, Christianity is one of the only religions where you don't have to get cleaned up. You come just as you are. You come just as you are. Because if you couldn't come as you are, guess what? You're not going to (laughs) come. Because no person can be saved. No person can cleanse his own sin. It's impossible to clean yourself up before you come to God. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us. What? In that while we were yet sinners, we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an incredible blessing of the gospel. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes this. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into, into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, among whom I'm foremost of all. Paul says, hey, you want to know who the chief sinner is? It's right here. And in a way, he was right. What was he doing before he was converted? He was killing Christians, thinking he was doing the right thing. Boyce points out some people that Jesus accepted. First of all, he, he points out that Jesus accepted sinners. You know, we sing that song, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And he truly is. Remember when he called Matthew? What was Matthew's profession before Jesus called him? He was a tax collector. And Matthew invited his friends to meet Jesus. And his friends were not well thought of by the Jewish leaders. As a matter of fact, they called them sinners. (laughs) So they said in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus passed on from there, verse 10, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, you follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, you can just see around the table, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, the old tax collectors, as Jesus is saying that, going, well, hold on a second, Jesus. He says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call, what? The righteous, but sinners. See, that's the first step to salvation. If, if you don't get to that step, you're not going to get salvation. What's the first step of salvation? Is recognizing your own sinfulness. Recognizing your own inability to save yourself. See, that's the problem with most people. Most people think they're pretty good. They got things together. They're, they're doing okay in life. And yeah, they'll go to church. They'll do different things and whatever, help people, whatever, thinking that somehow they're adding to their goodness as they go. But they've never come to a point in time in their life where they've realized that, you know what, if it wasn't for the mercy and grace of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, I would be undone. I would be lost in hell for all eternity. That's what the message of the gospel is. On another occasion, in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples. Why do you eat? And drink with the tax gatherers and the sinners. Over and over this happened. In Luke 18, he also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, another a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God... I thank you that I'm like, not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of his sin. But he began to beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. What? A sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One of the best accounts, I think, in the Gospels is in John 8. Jesus is dealing with a woman who's been caught in adultery. And clearly, as you read through that story, we're not going to take time to do all of that, but the leaders of the people were using her to trap Jesus, to discredit him. Um, and so they brought her to Jesus. This poor woman's frightened. She's humiliated. I mean, can you imagine being caught in the act of adultery? And they demanded, teacher, in verses 4 and 5, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say we do? And all the people are watching. So in order to have witnesses who would satisfy the, the rigorous demands of the Jewish law, they would have had to have placed spies in the room while this couple did what they did. It was clever on their part because if Jesus replied, forgive her, 
then what would they do? They would denounce him for rejecting God's law. They would say, wait, the law says this. No authentic messenger from God would do that. On the other hand, if Jesus said, you know what, you're right, let's stone her. (laughs) Then they would have stopped and said, oh, look at how insensitive that is. Isn't this the guy who also just said, come unto me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And now he's saying stone this lady. So you see the trap is laid. Well, what does he do? First of all, he caused somehow, we don't know what, he wrote something and it caused these men to be in such a shameful condition they left. He caused all the women's accusers to be convicted of their own sins. And one by one, they began to leave because they realized, oh, wait a minute, he's got a point here. Uh, we don't want him to continue to rattle off our sins in front of everybody, so I'm just going <laughs> to quietly go. I'll drop my little rock and leave. And then when all the people left, in verse 11 of John 8, it says, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, he didn't make an excuse for her behavior. In fact, what did he tell her to do? He told her to change. He said, this demands change. This interaction that you're having right now with me demands change. And it's no different today. If you have an interaction with Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, it demands change in your life. You can't go on business as usual. That's not true salvation. So rather than rejecting her, he accepted her as one of those many sinners for whom he would soon die. But not just sinners, but he also accepted outcasts. Outcasts. And these were even worse off than the tax collectors. These, you know, these were people like lepers, right? I mean, they were just a pariah on society. Uh, they, they had to stay outside the city gates lest they contaminate anyone. You know, we have this flu thing going around. And so, you know, you see some people... You know, oh, yeah, you got the flu. I'm not them. Stay away from me. I think we got to buy some more hand sanitizer there in the back. But, you know, it's important, you know, that you realize that here Jesus even accepted these people. And he gave what would be incredible evidence of his acceptance of them. One healing in Luke chapter 5 is reported. In Luke five twelve, a poor leper came to him begging, Lord, if you're willing, can you make me clean? Now that take, took faith on the leper's part because he was obviously approaching somebody who was, quote, holy. That was just a big no-no. And the text says this in verses 12 to 13. Jesus reached out his hand and he actually touched him. He touched this man with leprosy. And he said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, immediately, you know, there's no, hey, go check with your doctor and come see me in six weeks. Immediately, the leprosy left him. I mean, it was a remarkable display of grace for Christ to touch such a disease-stricken individual. And yet he did. And when he did, the lepers as well as other outcast people were made whole. So when these people saw that, they were like, hey, we're going to come to this guy too. So you can see from a religious standpoint, the Pharisees 
You know, I mean, these people were made, if they were to walk in this room, they would have to come in, leper, leper, so that everybody would know to move away. Because there were so many feet you had to have between you and another person. It was just really crazy. That's what they believed. And the religious leaders would never have anything to do with them. And not just because of the contagiousness that they thought of the disease, but also of just the idea that, well, they're that way because they're a sinner. And we're holy. And we don't, we don't deal with unholy people. Well, the last group of people that he points out they reached out to is not just the sinners and the outcasts, but also the unclean. Um, the unclean. In Mark 5, you have an account of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And you have to remember, in that day, in that time, and in that religious background, any kind of bodily discharge, including bleeding, was ceremonially unclean. And if you had any contact with it at all, you, there was a whole process of things you had to go through in order to once again get clean. Um, even touching their clothing or sitting where they had been sitting would cause you to be unclean. So if a person was unclean, they couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't do anything. It was even worse than the, the outcasts. And the state of this woman in Mark 5, verse 28, Jesus is passing by. She's probably lived a life of painful isolation, painful loneliness. Can you imagine never having any contact with anybody? When she learned that Jesus was coming, she followed after him, and it says, dared to touch out and touch his clothing, his cloak. If I just touch his clothes, maybe I'll be healed. That's the kind of faith she had. Well, guess what? She was. She was healed. Her bleeding ceased, there's that word again, immediately. (laughs) Yet, at the same time, knowing, wow, this worked, she was probably terrified. She was probably frightened. Because here is this religious leader with all these people, and he turns around and he says, who touched me? Somebody just got healed, who is it? But she had the faith to come forward. She probably came forward thinking, okay, well, this is probably going to be the end of me. I'm going to be rebuked for this one. But Jesus didn't treat her as one who had done anything wrong. Rather, he commended her for her faith. In verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. A few verses later, you see Jesus went to the home of a synagogue ruler and touched his dead daughter. That was another no-no. You don't touch dead people. Well, what happened? She came back to life. So you see Jesus accepting these kinds of people, but you know what? Even more than that, (laughs) I mean, those are bad, but even more than that, Jesus Christ has accepted us. He's accepted us. I mean, we may not be the sinners or the unclean or the the outcasts that we just spoke of. But in the true sense of the word, we are unclean. 
Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, All of our righteous acts are like what? Filthy rags before a holy God. Can you imagine how you, in your sin, apart from Christ, must appear to a God who is absolutely holy, pure, perfect? You couldn't stand. I mean, you can't see yourself that way. But so many times we think more of ourselves than what we ought. We dismiss our sins as mistakes or shortcomings. And we compliment ourselves on how well we're doing. If you turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 3, I just want to remind us, all of us, what Scripture tells how God sees us. In Romans 3.10 it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have altogether become what? Worthless. Look at this next one. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is how God sees you and me apart from Christ. That's so important to understand. He sees us as utterly abhorrent to himself. And also a menace to others. See, we have to understand, beloved, there is nothing you can do in the line of good works that will make you acceptable to God or to Christ. Nothing. The only thing you can do is believe in what Christ has done for you. But in spite of all that... (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ, this is, the, this is the, the kind of the dessert. The very Son of God has accepted you and I. He died in order to bring you and I into his righteous kingdom. So that God the Father could accept us as well. Well, how is that even possible? If we're so far gone, how is that possible? Because of his work on Calvary, what he did for us. See, this is Paul's argument. This is what Paul is saying. How then can you, who's partaken of this forgiveness and this unity in Christ, how could you possibly even think of excluding someone else? You have to accept them as you have been accepted. And for that matter... You must not only love Christians, but you must also love and seek to bring to Christ all who are not yet Christians. Why? For his sake, for his glory. He accepts them gladly. He accepts sinners in spite of their sin. And then the last thing here, Jesus receives sinners impartially. Impartially. 
His promise is definite. His promise is unequivocal. In John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will what? Certainly not cast out. See, the Lord has bound himself by his own word that he will accept any person without qualification who receives him by faith. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. doesn't matter what you look like. That's why Paul, early in the book, when we went through Romans chapter 2, verse 11, he pointed out there's absolutely no partiality with God. Remember that? It was difficult for Peter to understand that. But he finally confessed it in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. James points it out as well in James chapter 2. He says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears a fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place. While you say to the poor man, you know what, you can stick out there in the lobby. Stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. He accepts them gladly. He accepts sinners in spite of their sin. And he receives sinners impartially. And verse 7 in our text says that he receives them for the glory of God. Jesus accepts sinners for the glory of God. That's what he says. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, look, you need to do this because this is for his glory. For none of us lives to himself Oops, that's chapter 14. Or chapter, yeah, chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote this in verses 5 and 6. He says, God has predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then he says this, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In chapter 3 of the same book, Ephesians, he closes off that chapter with this benediction. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power of God within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Or in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Do you understand that? Every knee will bow. 
whether in heaven or in earth or under the earth, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That's the name that's above every name, by the way. It's not the name Jesus. It's the name Lord. That's why that's such an incredible title of Christ. Because Lord means you're over all. So Paul here shows his unifying heart to us in very clear terms. He gives us Christ as the example. He tells us that Christ accepts sinners gladly. He accepts them in spite of their sin. He receives sinners impartially. And he receives them for the highest reason, the glory of God. That's what we're called to do as a church. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that, that gives the world a picture of what real true unity looks like. That you can come to this place no matter what your background, no matter what you look like, no matter what you, whatever is going on in your life, you can come here knowing that you know what? You're going to hear God's truth and that God's truth will change you. But that the people in this place will care for you. They'll love you. Irrespective of what you look like or who you are. That's the kind of church that will bring honor and glory to its Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that as we look at and hear these words, Lord, we all are humbled. We all kind of shrink down in our own glory, thinking that somehow as Christians we've arrived, somehow as Christians that we've risen above all this, but we really haven't, if we're honest with our own hearts. Each one of us probably makes judgments each day against someone else that's grieving to you. And Lord, we just are so thankful that you are gracious with us, that you're patient with us, that you don't demand us to be perfect in our practice before you. Lord, but your sacrifice on the cross paid for all those misjudgments, paid for all those ulterior motives, paid for all those sins that we continue to commit even in this thing we call the church, the glorious church. As individuals, we all fail you at times. We sin. And that's why the Bible says very clearly that when we sin, that we should confess our sins. We should come to you and tell you. Not that you don't already know. You know. But it's therapeutic for us to come and to, to tell our sins to you, to confess them. And then thank you for your forgiveness in Christ because of our faith and trust in the work of Christ. Lord, we're so thankful that you don't judge us in a way as the world does. But your judgments are pure. Your judgments are holy. And Lord, you call us to come to the only remedy for our sin. That's your son and his sacrifice on the cross. And we just praise you today. Those of us who know you personally, we praise you for our salvation in Christ. We praise you that we don't have to work for it. 
that we don't have to worry over it, that we are secure in Christ. It's not based upon who we are or what we do. It's based upon what was done on our behalf and our faith in that sacrifice. Such a glorious truth. And Lord, we we pray for any who might yet to put their faith in Christ. Maybe you're here today and and you feel the weight of your sin. You feel God pressing down on your soul. Maybe you think more highly than you you should about yourself. And God is saying, you know what? You're a sinner just like everybody else is a sinner. Because his truth says that, that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. But he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you a future. And that's why we point you to the cross. Jesus says, if you're willing to acknowledge your sin, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, that salvation awaits you. See, Christ already took the cross for us. So we're not going to a cross and dying for our sins as Christ did because he already did that. But we're putting our faith, our trust in that work. And if you haven't done that yet, I pray that you would cry out to the Lord just like the individual we read in in the scripture this morning. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Just acknowledge your sinfulness before God. And God will be gracious and loving and forgiving. He'll save you. And he'll change you. He'll make you into the person that he desires you to be. And your relationship with him will be reconciled. And your life will never be the same. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.